Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 269, Mikhail Kutuzov, Military Genius and Napoleon's Nemesis, part 5. Last time, we covered the events leading up to Kutuzov being given overall command of the Russian army to turn back the invasion of the country by the Grande Armée of Napoleon Bonaparte. Today, we end this series with the French defeat, Kutuzov's victory, and his death in 1813. On August 18, 1812, Mikhail Ilyanovich Kutuzov was ushered into the imperial residence of Tsar Alexander to talk about his plans for the war against Napoleon. The general assured the emperor that he would not allow the French Grande Armée to march into and attack Russia as long as there were still troops in Smolensk. Unfortunately, neither knew that the Ukrainian city was already in Napoleon's hands. The Tsar was unhappy with the decision to name Kutuzov as the commander of all of the Russian forces. As he told one of his aides, quote, The public wanted his appointment, so I appointed him. As for myself, I washed my hands of it all. Neither man knew what the war's outcome would be, but when Kutuzov made it to the first relay post on the way to Smolensk, he was met by a report that the city had indeed fallen. The general would be heard to say, the key to Moscow has been given away. The arrival of Kutuzov in the town of Gazatsk on August 29th excited the soldiers as he was considered the best Russian military mind in the country. As one soldier put it, Kutuzov had, quote, a Russian name, a Russian mind, and a Russian heart. As Karl van Clausewitz said, quote, Kutuzov's arrival stirred fresh confidence in the army. A true Russian, a new Suvorov had arrived to exercise the evil genius of the foreigners. As for the other generals, some were less than happy about the appointment. General Mikhail Milorovich thought, quote, he lacked any military talents and was a person of duplicitous disposition and a wretched courtier. Barclay de Tolly was annoyed and said to his wife, ah, only the Lord knows if we have made the right decision. The one who thought the worst, though, of Kutuzov was General Bagration who believed his superior was, quote, swindler who is capable of selling us out for money. Because of all of the potential backstabbing, Kutuzov decided to surround himself with a group he knew he could trust. His son-in-law, Nikolai Kudashev, Pezi Kersarov, and Colonel Karl von Toll were among the few that served to protect their superior officer. Unfortunately, this made him even less liked than before by Barclay de Tolly, who was heard to say, Soon after his arrival, the prince was surrounded by a crowd of useless people, many of whom I had previously removed from the army. None of this detached Kutuzov from what he knew was his job, stop Napoleon. The first thing he needed to do was to whip the Russian army back into shape. The troops were pillaging all around the countryside. His first directive, though, was to combat, quote, 
marauding that has spread in the army and reached such a scale that I'm worried about maintaining order and peace in Moscow and its environs. The next day, over 2,000 soldiers were arrested by the military police. They were all pardoned, though, by Kutuzov, but he warned that they would be shot the next time. Kutuzov knew at this point that his army was in no shape to fight a brilliant commander like Napoleon, who also had a numerically superior force. The Grand Armée had 165,000 men, to the Russians, 100,000. So retreat was the only answer to the threat. Barclay de Tolly had already shown that this was the way to go, but Kutuzov took it to another level. Whereas de Tolly was right, he did not have the soldiers' confidence. Kutuzov had that and much more. As Mikabirdsi writes in his biography of the general, quote, Kutuzov held supreme command and possessed credibility, charisma, and skills to manipulate circumstances to his advantage. He further writes, Herein lay Kutuzov's strength. He may not have been the most brilliant general in his era, but his background, character, and experiences matched the circumstances. He respected Napoleon, but was not overawed by him, nor did he feel threatened by any of the generals in his own army who had openly opposed Barclay de Tolly. As the Grand Armée moved forward, its supply lines became thinner and thinner. The men were exhausted by the constant marching, marching but not fighting. Moreover, the Russian heat of summer was making them thirsty, hungry, miserable, blinded, and choked by the dust they raised. The Russian army was gathered at Sarsevo Zemshe, a small town near the Ukrainian-Russian border in the Smolensk Oblast. While the land favored the Russians, Kutuzov did not think it was a favorable enough place to make a stand. This led to an ordered retreat starting on August 31st. An officer wrote in his diary, quote, That insufferable drum woke us up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we set off on the road to Moscow. Instead of complaining and grumbling about the retreat as they had in the past, things were different. The same officer wrote, We hear songs and music, which had not had happened in quite some time. Despite the fact that we were retreating once more, we felt revitalized because we expected to confront the French very soon. Kutuzov sought that perfect spot to defend against the approaching French army. Unfortunately, the land between Smolensk and Moscow had no such place. As Mikabirdze writes, quote, the countryside was too marshy or wooded for armies to take up positions. Where the forests were thinner, as between Smolensk and Moscow, the ground was too flat and the fields too open, which made flanking any position possible. Kutuzov, Bagration, and others kept searching for that ideal place. Finally, on September 3rd, Bagration wrote in his log, quote, the army has set up its camp near the village of Borodino. The town is 200 miles from Smolensk and only 70 miles from Moscow.
writing to Tsar Alexander, Kutusov said, The position at Borodino, where I am currently halted, is one of the best places one can find on planes. The weakest spot of this position is the left flank, but I will make up for it with engineering art. While the positions they took in Borodino were far from ideal, it was the best chance that they had to confront the Grande Armée. Now, this is how Leo Tolstoy, in his book War and Peace, described Kutuzov's demeanor before the battle. Quote, With his gray nape sunk between his shoulders, and his face wearing a strained look, as if he found it difficult to master the fatigue of his old and feeble body. As he viewed the Battle of Borodino, Tolstoy wrote that Kutuzov was, quote, giving orders and only assessing to or dissenting from what others suggested. Lieutenant Nikolai Mithoversky would say, quote, it was as though some kind of power emanated from the venerable commander, inspiring all of those around him. A 15-year-old soldier, Lieutenant Dushkinkevich, remembered what Kutuzov had said to the men before sending them into the fight. Boys, today it will fall on you to defend your native land. You must serve it faithfully and truly and to the last drop of blood. Before I go any further, I have plans, I think sometime in November, to do an entire episode about the Battle of Borodino. So we won't go into detail about the events surrounding the fighting. Kutuzov and his generals planning would leave them unable to be victorious, but it did hurt Napoleon's army badly, a hurt that would never heal. The Grand Armée had about 133,000 men and 587,587 cannons at Borodino. They would suffer 28,000 deaths from the battle and 21,500 injured. The problem they faced was that their supply lines were stretched so thinly they did not have the wherewithal to take care of the wounded soldiers. Many would die of starvation from infection and disease. The final numbers bring the estimate of deaths to between 34 to 36,000. That represents about 25% of the entire force. The Russians, well, they, they suffered even more. They lost 44,000 out of the estimated 150,000 men present, including 22 generals, one of whom was Prince Bagration. That was not as bad as the French, though, who counted 49 generals as killed in action. While the Russians could easily replace the fallen, not so for the French. No one could claim victory over the other, and the outcome, though, hurt Napoleon's Grande Armée worse. In the entirety of the Napoleonic Wars, Borodino would be heads and tails more deadly than any other battle, including Waterloo. Over 75,000 men died, while 55,000 lost their lives at Waterloo. While Borodino allowed Napoleon to take the city of Moscow, what he found was a burnt-out town with nothing of any value to help his troops survive the coming winter. Most scholars and contemporaries describe Borodino as a pyrrhic victory for the French. Russian historian Oleg Sokolov posits that Borodino constituted that pyrrhic victory for the French 
and it would also ultimately cost Napoleon the war and his crown. However, none of this was apparent to either side at the time. The battle was famously described by Leo Tolstoy, quote, After the shock that had been received, the French army was still able to crawl to Moscow. But there, without any new efforts on the part of the Russian troops, it was doomed to perish, bleeding to death from the mortal wound received at Borodino. Karl von Clausewitz, a Prussian general and military theorist, said of Gattuzov's value at the Battle of Borodino that he was, quote, worth more at the head of the whole, where his cunning and prudence allowed him to survey his own position and that of his adversary. Better than individual commanders with their limited perspective. After the battle, Kutuzov asked for reports of the state of the Russian army at Borodino. Well, as you can imagine, it was not good. Whole divisions were almost completely wiped out. The report showed that the Russians were incapable of taking on Napoleon, which left Kutuzov with three choices. Head east to Moscow, north toward St. Petersburg, or south toward Kaluga, and entice Napoleon to follow him and spare Moscow. Well, going south was a no-go, as it would have meant a fighting retreat, which was unthinkable given the state of the Russian army. The decision was made to sacrifice Moscow. As Kutuzov put it while reminiscing two months after the battle, quote, It was very difficult for me to abandon Moscow, but I knew that fighting another battle might have led to the defeat and the end of the war, so I choose to forego the city. Kutuzov had to inform the governor-general of Moscow, Count Fyodor Vasilievich Rostopochin, of his plans. He wrote, Today was a fierce and bloody battle. With the Lord's help, the Russian army refused to concede even a step, even though the enemy was in far superior numbers. Placing my faith in the Lord and the Moscow saints, I hope to resume the battle with fresh forces tomorrow. Kutuzov also had to inform Tsar Alexander about what happened at Borodino. In his first report, he told of the fierce fighting and the bravery and tenacity of the Russian soldiers. The general also told the Tsar they felt that they were victorious. However, in his second message, he shared the fact that they had suffered horrendous losses of men as well. Kutuzov also wrote to Alexander that he was not interested in, quote, the glory of merely winning battles, but rather in achieving the goal of annihilating the entire French army. The Tsar would share the first message with the people, but obviously not the second about losing tens of thousands of men. Kutuzov moved what was left of his army, about 70,000 men, to the town of Moshayesk, some 110 kilometers or 68 miles west of Napoleon. Napoleon himself, or west of Moscow. Napoleon himself, uh, he needed to resupply his army with both provisions and ammunition. According to George Chambray, a 19th century French writer, quote, few battles won had produced such an extraordinary effect on the winners. They seemed to be stupefied. Most of the men were uncertain how long this war would last and how it would end. 
Napoleon himself was just wiped out. But General Marat wasn't. He led an advance guard towards Mozhaisk. The Cossack hetman, Adaman Platov, who bungled his assignments at Borodino, did so yet again as he led Marat and his part of the French army right to the Russians. This infuriated Kutuzov, but Russian general Miloradovich took control and pushed Marat back. Rostopochin began to move the wealthy citizens out of Moscow, fearing that the city was in peril. Still, he kept assuring the general populace that all was okay. Rostopochin and General Benigsen wanted to make a stand at the walls of Moscow, but Kutuzov had already made the decision to abandon the city. So there was a meeting of those generals still available to strategize what their next moves would be. What they decided was any defense of Moscow would lead to the complete destruction of the Russian army. A council of war was called to order. Unfortunately, we have no written minutes of the meeting, but what we do have is correspondence from the generals to the families. It is said that Kutuzov put the following question to those gathered, quote, Should we wait to be attacked in the disadvantageous position or cede Moscow to the enemy? Benixson and Barclay de Tolly went at each other, with Benixson wanting to fight, while de Tolly said, quote, By saving Moscow, Russia will not avoid this brutal, ruinous war. But having preserved our army, the hopes of our fatherhand, fatherland would be preserved, and the war would be continued on better terms. The infighting and squabbling went on for quite a while, while Kutuzov took control. He looked at the generals and said, quote, I am aware of the responsibility I am assuming, but I am willing to sacrifice myself for the welfare of my country. I hereby order the retreat. Napoleon thought that well, abandoning Moscow without a fight was wrong, but in hindsight, we all know it was the right thing to do. Rostopochin was informed that he needed to evacuate the 275,000 remaining residents of Moscow post-haste. While the wealthier citizens could afford to move with their belongings, this was not the case for the ordinary people. The commoners were angry at the nobility and the merchants for leaving. Even angrier and more frustrated were the soldiers. They couldn't believe they were abandoning the ancient former capital. As people were streaming out, fires began to break out. No one ordered the burning of Moscow, but burn it did. Kutuzov ordered that any ammunition depots that could not be moved be destroyed, as well as any supplies that could be used by the French. The explosions of the ammunition caused more fires to break out. Moscow would burn for five days. Out of 9,000 homes, 6,300 would be destroyed. The French, though, were slow in pursuing Kutuzov, and they had no idea what he was doing. At first, he sent his troops southward. Then, in what was deemed by many to be the most brilliant ploy in Kutuzov's career, he moved westward in a flanking maneuver. Finally, noting that the French were not following him, Kutuzov got closer to Napoleon's line of communication by camping at the village of Krasny Pakra. 
While many wanted Kutuzov to attack the French supply lines, the wily general refused as he wanted Napoleon to stay in Moscow for a little bit longer and not entice him to leave and attack the Russians. A new tactic was implemented, with the Cossacks harassing the French, destroying any supplies they had. Napoleon was furious with his generals, especially Marat, for not knowing where the Russian army was. They began their search for Kutuzov on September 22, 1812. The Russian commander was playing a game with Napoleon as he was waiting to increase his forces with reinforcements arriving every day. Kutuzov wanted to avoid a pitch battle until the numbers favored him. Retreat from the French was ordered, which angered many, but it would prove to be the right thing to do. They would end up in the city of Torotino. On October 18, 1812, Kutuzov ordered Benigsen and Miloradovich to attack Murat's corps with two columns stealthily crossing the forest in the dead of night. Benigsen's main column included three additional columns led by Vasily Orlov Denisov, Karl Gustav by Baga Hufwood, and Alexander Osterman Tolstoy, respectively. The Russians had 90,000 men to the, in the field to Marat's 20,000. The Battle of Tortino would be a significant Russian victory, one sorely needed after all of the retreats. Marat would lose over 3,000 men, with the Russians losing 500. Reinforcements were now pouring into the Russian camp. After Torotino, the army was now at full strength, with over 120,000 men and with more coming. Many thought the time was right for a major confrontation, but not Kutuzov. He believed that the best way to deal with Napoleon was to wage a quote-unquote small war. The French commander knew that things were getting dangerous for his Grande Armée, so he decided to abandon Moscow on October 19th. Instead, Kutuzov instructed his generals to wage a war of attrition, aiming to, quote, inflict the greatest possible losses upon the enemy. Day after day, the Russians were successfully implementing their plans. Furthermore, Kutuzov had his men use the peasants' anger at the French to arm them and appeal to their patriotism. They began to attack the French lines of communication and supply trains all over the countryside. The French complained that, well, this is not a fair way to wage war. Well, Kutuzov could care less, as he would continue using guerrilla warfare against his country's enemies. Napoleon tried to negotiate a peace with Tsar Alexander, but he totally misread the leader's mindset. He thought he could be pressured into sitting down with the French leader by the Francophiles in the court. After receiving the report of Kutuzov on the fall of Moscow, Alexander sent this statement to the Russian army, quote, I shall use up every last resource of my empire. It possesses even more than my enemies yet think. Napoleon or me, me or him, for we cannot rule at the same time. I've learned to understand him, and he will not deceive me again. Alexander actually had no choice. He had seen with his own eyes what happens to unpopular monarchs in Russia. Napoleon knew that his time in Russia was running out. 
He had thought about marching on St. Petersburg, but his marshals warned him, uh, winter's coming. Their supplies lines were running low, and that winning a battle would do them no good at this point. So the French emperor sent his most senior diplomat, General Jacques-Alexandre Bernard Law, the Marquis de Lauriston, to deliver a message to Kutuzov. Napoleon told his emissary, quote, I want peace. I must have peace. Save my honor by any means you can. On October 5, 1812, the French ambassador reached Kutuzov's camp. While he was under strict orders from Alexander to not negotiate with the French, he was kind of curious as to what the Marquis had to say. This would cause a great deal of concern in the Russian camp. They thought Kutuzov was losing his mind and thought of removing him from his position. Because of this and the death due to infection of Bagration, Kutuzov decided to restructure the officer corps. Barclay de Tolly decided that he would ask for leave due to illness, which was granted. Kutuzov met with the French Marquis for only half an hour, which allowed him to fully realize how much Napoleon was in a real pickle. What the French did not know was Kutuzov had used the appearance of negotiating as a means of stalling Napoleon's retreat from Moscow. He was proven right, as the French emperor sent yet another envoy to try to sue for peace. Kutuzov's fake negotiations did the trick. He knew the message to Tsar Alexander in St. Petersburg would take some time to reach him. Also, he gave the impression to the Marquis that his message would be transmitted to the Tsar. Napoleon thought that the possibility of peace was now available. He would sit and wait, enjoying unusually warm autumn days. He didn't realize that the Russians were picking off the French soldiers, capturing them, and sending them to the Russian camp. It's estimated they were seizing about 300 men a day. To top it off, the Grande Armée was beginning to weaken, just as the Russian army was gaining strength. Food was in short supply, so much so that Marshal Marat told Napoleon, quote, I have the whole enemy army in front of me. Our advanced guard is reduced to nothing. It is starving, and it is no longer possible to go foraging without the virtual certainty of capture. Napoleon turned a deaf ear to his general. The battle that Kutuzov wanted was the Battle of Torotino, which I mentioned. While it would be a marginal victory, it was a victory nonetheless. However, another much fiercer fight was about to occur, the Battle of Maliozlovitz on October 25th, 1812. The two sides were of equal strength, with about 24,000 on each side. The French would win a tactical victory, but it cost them dearly. They lost 6,000 men to the Russian losses of 8,000. Nevertheless, it set up the next fight, which would be a crushing victory for the Russians, the Battle of Krasnoy. It would be fought over three days, from November 15th through the 18th. While the Russians would suffer significant losses again of approximately 5,000 men, the French losses were staggering. 10,000 men died, but the real problem was the 20,000 men captured and made war prisoners. 
At this point, Kutuzov knew that the war was won. He now concerned himself with keeping his army strong by not going into pitched battles. He stuck with his small war tactics. Kutuzov knew that in post-Napoleon Europe, Russia would play a significant role as they did not want the British to fill in the vacuum left by a defeated France. Kutuzov would lead his army to chase Napoleon out of Russia for the next few months. As they did this, the Russian soldiers were shocked to see the condition of the retreating French army. The Russian winter was also attacking Napoleon's troops. The rate of attrition accelerated day by day. Kutuzov himself was weary of the constant fighting and was rumored to be sleeping up to 18 hours a day. During a meeting at the Russian command center, one of the generals was heard to have said, quote, Thank God he's asleep. Every day of inaction is equal to a battle won. While the French army suffered terribly, the Russians were only marginally better. The supply trains were now stretched to their limit, but the men were in far better emotional shape than their counterparts. As the French were nearing the Polish border, the Russians were supposed to smash the Grand Armée at the banks of the Berezina River. Instead, Napoleon's troops had made a significant coup by capturing Minsk and its vast supply depots and making it to Borisov, where they could seize the bridge over the river. The reason for the failure of the Russians to execute the coup de grace was the bitter infighting amongst the generals, as well as a lack of communications over the vastness of the Russian countryside. Tsar Alexander began to get involved and ordered a strike force to hit the French at Borisov. Marshal Udenow's men smashed the Russians and captured over 300 wagons filled with food and supplies. By November 26th, the Grand Armée had made it across the Berezina. It saved over 30,000 of their men. Had the Russians arrived just a day earlier, Napoleon would have lost all his forces and there would never have been a Waterloo. The Grand Armée arrived in Russia with 600,000 men. Only 60,000 recrossed the Niemen River. Even though Kutuzov had vanquished his enemy, Tsar Alexander was not happy with him. While he reproached the general for failing to totally destroy Napoleon's army, he could not do so publicly, as Kutuzov was, by now, a national hero. The Russian army got a four-week break before continuing to pursue Napoleon's army. The emperor himself was now back in Paris, dealing with a potential coup. Kutuzov was back at the head of the military, but his health began to take a turn for the worse. On April 28, 1813, Mikhail Ilarionovich Golnitschev Kutuzov passed away. He was 65 years old. The news of his death caused Russians everywhere to pay homage to the man they believed had saved Russia. Tsar Alexander ordered that he be buried at the newly consecrated Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan in the capital, St. Petersburg, with full honors. The final burial ceremony was held on Friday, June 25, 1813. Well, I hope you enjoyed this series and this episode. Join me next time when we move to a completely new subject, the Moscow Trials. So until next time, das vidanya y spasiba sa